0: A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere, and then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile 1 for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us/radio to learn more. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way.
1: Wars That Shaped the World uses dynamic, immersive audio to depict scenes of warfare. Listener discretion is advised.
2: The entire Gulf has been stunned. You've been greatly shocked by... The Revolutionary Command Council on Thursday is announcing that the Kuwaiti government has been overthrown.
1: The First Gulf War took the world by surprise. Saddam Hussein's battle-hardened revolutionary guard, sweeping out of the pitch black of an Arabian desert night to overwhelm its diminutive neighbor. Kuwait's royal family, ministers and generals fled for their lives as their country was overrun in a matter of hours. This was to become a conflict counted in hours. The eventual ground war the sharp end of Operation Desert Storm was branded the 100-hour war.
2: To take steps are necessary to our...
1: This was warfare never seen before. A world away from the specter of Vietnam that had haunted the American armed forces for decades. A war of immense destruction. A war won by firepower like no other. The first war the world watched on television. Good morning. At 2 a.m. local time, Iraqi troops crossed the border into Kuwait. Baghdad insists that Kuwait has been... It was never the mother of all battles. Saddam's forces had no answer to the destructive might of America and its coalition allies. But enough of his army scrambled back to Iraq to ensure Saddam survived. And Saddam's survival was to have consequences the Middle East and far beyond, were to suffer for years to come and still live with today. It may have been short and very sharp, but the first Gulf War proved a conflict that shaped the world. American and
2: coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people and to defend the world from grave danger. If
1: we do act, we should do so with a clear conscience and a strong heart the is supposed precisely It may have been the
2: worst decision going into Iraq. It may have been the worst decision anybody has made, any president has made in the history of this country. That's how bad it is.
1: This is wars that shaped the world.
2: and an explosive development near the Persian Gulf. Word that Iraq has invaded the neighboring state of Kuwait with fighting reported along the border. Residents say
3: that they were awakened by machine guns. None of us can do it separately. We need a collective and effective will of the nations.
2: No one commits America's armed forces to a dangerous mission lightly but after perhaps unparalleled international consultation
1: and exhausting every
3: moment. When I heard the news that morning, I was overcome by an overwhelming sense of pain and despair. It was a dreadful day for both Gulf countries, but definitely the beginning of the end for Iraq. Nothing has been the same again. Nothing.
4: Smart packages of Coca-Cola Classic, Diet Coke, and Sprite.
2: Amen. Weeknights at 7.30 on Fox 19. Game Boy from Nintendo. In order to participate in this next exercise, you first need to
3: relax yourself. Recall the first home you can
0: remember as a child. And actually look... Hello? Mm -hmm. Denise, is that you, honey? Uh, The line
3: is... They're here. They're here. I can...
0: Denise, what? What's going on? Is everything all...
3: Denise? Tanks in the street and It's the Iraqis. They've invaded. Denise! They're here. Oh, my God! Denise! Denise! Denise.
1: August 2nd, 1990. It's the eve of Ashura, the Shia Muslim holiday. In Kuwait City, a festive mood is in the air. Tensions with Iraq that have risen alarmingly, placed quietly aside by the capital city's residents. Far to the south, across the border with Saudi Arabia, a convoy of limousines speeds away from Jeddah, heading for Kuwait and home. Inside one of the sleek black cars, the crown prince of the small Gulf state, Saad Abdallah al-Sabah, stares into the darkness of the desert. Later, he would tell one of his ministers he'd a bad feeling in his stomach. Talks with an Iraqi delegation had broken up with no progress. The only agreement was for further discussion, due to resume a couple of days later. The Crown Prince knew all too well of the Iraqi armed forces mustering on his nation's eastern border. The tank divisions of the feared Republican Guard, hardened veterans of years of fierce combat with Iran, equipped with formidable Soviet tanks. He didn't think they'd come. Nobody thought they'd come. They wouldn't, would they? The Crown Prince swallowed hard, rubbed his stomach and stared into the darkness. Half an hour later, far to the north of the Crown Prince's speeding convoy, a radar balloon rose as it did each night over Kuwait's border with Iraq. It wasn't long before it picked up something of interest to its American operators, Iraqi tanks on the move. A warning flashed to the Kuwaiti armed forces and to the Pentagon, but it's already too late. Saidria Fort commands the main highway between Iraq and Kuwait. It's a key crossing point. A company of Iraqi commandos emerges out of the darkness. The assault is swift and silent. The Q80s are taken completely by surprise. Back across the border in Iraq, General Hamdani peers through the darkness as he perches on top of his tank, its engine grumbling quietly. He constantly checks his watch. Time is vital. Three green flares light up the sky. Hamdani grunts in satisfaction. The fort has been taken without casualties. <laughs> the general reaches for his radio and barks an order. The sound of tank engines fill the night sky, followed by the squeal of tracks. The way is clear for the Hammurabi division, named for a Babylonian king, to begin its advance. Objective?
3: Kuwait City. Despite the screeching of our armour and the long, thick belt of dust that obscured the sky above, there was an horrific silence. Our radio was not picking up any signals from our command or any of the other formations. My staff officers began to believe the whole mission was canceled and that our brigade was the only one on the way to Kuwait city.
1: The Hammurabi were not alone, and soon they were cheering from their tanks as dozens of helicopters roared low overhead, carrying commandos swiftly towards the Kuwaiti capital. The pilots were less happy. In a sign of things to come, the Iraqi invasion plan had not been well briefed, let alone practised by their forces.
3: The whole Iraqi army had no idea we were going to Kuwait. We generous went by part of the planning. We heard about it over television. It was Saddam and a small group who made this decision.
1: The helicopter pilots were informed only at midnight they were about to take part in the largest air assault in Iraqi history, and it was taking off in less than four hours. They were late getting started. It was a muddled beginning. But 96 helicopters eventually took to the air shortly before half past four. The bewildered pilots had no experience of night flying, and certainly not night flying into a combat zone. There were numerous collisions. A number more flew into power lines. A handful were shot down by Q80 Mirage fighters. More than 40 of the 96 were not to make it home. Back on the ground, things were going more smoothly. The Hammurabi were one of three powerful armoured columns thrusting into Kuwait. Two more Republican Guard outfits, the Medina and Tawakalna Divisions, advanced further west. The Q80s, for all the warning signals, were taken completely by surprise. By the time the Crown Prince and his staff reached their headquarters and gathered their generals, Their forces were already engaging the invaders. Heavily outnumbered, there was little they could do. Here and there, rearguard actions delayed the advance. But not for long. The Iraqis overwhelmed the scattered defenders of the key Mutla Ridge and pressed on towards the capital. Ahead of them, Kuwaiti commanders scrambled to assemble men and equipment. Soldiers were swiftly pressed into roles they'd never trained for, notably as tank crew, to fill the gaps left by those on holiday.
3: Nobody was sure what was going on. It was very confusing.
1: On the main highway to Q8 city, truck drivers on overnight deliveries were startled to be joined by tanks, Iraqi tanks. As the drivers abandoned their trucks, Hamdani and his men at last caught sight of their enemy, Q80 tanks. The Q80 armed forces were equipped with dated British chieftain tanks and were no match for the Republican guard. They were
3: still in a column heading north. Our leading tanks fired off a few rounds and they abandoned their vehicles and turned around and started to flee.
1: Dr. Al-Ghanayim, a minister in the Kuwaiti government, stood on the rooftop terrace of his home in a suburb of Kuwait City.
3: By dawn it was clear they were coming. We could hear machine guns, gunfire. They were coming and we had nothing to stop them.
1: As Dr. Al-Ghanayim listened in growing alarm to the sound of gunfire, deeper in the city, Undercover Iraqi agents were taking to the streets armed with machine guns. They'd infiltrated into Kuwait over the preceding weeks. Confusion spread across the capital. Amid the mounting chaos, the Crown Prince left GHQ. While the rest of the government limousines headed for the main air defense base, al-Sabah instructed his driver to take a different route. As they sped through the streets, the Crown Prince picked up the car phone and rang his father, the Emir. I'm coming to get you, he said. We have to get out. The Crown Prince hurried to the Dasman Palace, arriving just minutes ahead of helicopters carrying Iraqi special forces. Their mission, capture the Emir. by less than five minutes. Unaware of their near miss, the Iraqi commandos assault the palace. In the firefight that followed, Fahd al-Ahmad, the Amir's brother, is shot in the head and killed. Meanwhile, Coniston Water, a British Airways Boeing 747 named after a stretch of water in the Lake District, was heading into the middle of the invasion. BA149 landed at Q8 International Airport in the early hours, a scheduled break for the flight from Heath Road to Kuala Lumpur. It was a stopover that was to turn into a permanent stay. Passengers and crew were taken hostage by the Iraqis. Oh the women and children were released at the end of August. The men were used as human shields in Baghdad and only let go after the former British Prime Minister Edward Heath flew to the Iraqi capital to persuade Saddam to free them.
3: The British Airways flight
1: landed. Why BA 149 landed once the invasion had begun remains a mystery. The pilot checked with authorities in London and air traffic control in Kuwait and was given the all-clear. All the invasion. The invasion there have long been claims the flight was used by the British to smuggle special forces into Kuwait, and that was why it was not diverted. As recently as 2021, Liz Truss, then Foreign Secretary, issued an apology for a warning not being passed on to the flight. She also insisted there were no special forces on board. ...to getting them
4: into Kuwait put lives at risk.
1: Many remain unconvinced. By early morning, the Iraqis reached Kuwait city. Isolated Kuwaiti units harassed the invaders where they could, but their impact was minimal. A handful of tanks destroyed, barely 100 of the enemy killed brushing aside any resistance, the Hammurabi advanced into the city itself.
3: We were really shocked by the terror of the Kuwaiti citizens. The roads were full of civilian cars. There was a general atmosphere of surprise, worry and panic. We tried our best to quiet them down and stop the traffic, but the panic was so great that I was afraid what might happen.
1: Soon, Hamdani faced another problem. He was running out of fuel. The original Iraqi plan was for the invading forces to refuel at Q80 petrol stations. Only these were now clogged with panicked locals. Fuel pumps, cash points, and any open shops were quickly besieged by residents.
3: vehicle had run out of petrol and the communication vehicle behind me was on its last drops. I called the nearest Kuwaiti police officer and asked him for two things. I said firstly there are 1,000 more tanks behind me. I exaggerated. So could you and your comrades help open the road so we can proceed without running over innocent civilians and secondly could you please help us refuel he was very scared, but I quieted him down and he obeyed me. The roads opened and one of the Kuwaitis who was refueling my vehicle, we pumped the gas out of the police cars, also showed us how to get to the Masila Hotel.
1: The hotel on the Gulf Coast was Hamdani's stopping point. He and his tanks were there by 9.30 a.m. on August the 2nd. His job was done and so was the invasion. The Nebuchadnezzar Division had taken much of the rest of Q-8 City, although a dogged rearguard action by the outgunned and outnumbered Q-80 forces delayed the Medina Division in their task to sweep down the coast south of the capital. Ujah! Ujah! It meant much of the Q-80 military, and many civilians, were able to escape to Saudi Arabia. For the civilians in Kuwait City, it was an alarming experience to awake to the sound of gunfire. Some, like expat Peter Burns, woke up to hear the news on the BBC World Service. Good morning. At 2 a.m. local time, Iraqi troops crossed the border into Kuwait. Others on Radio Kuwait's Arabic service. And some even tuned in to hear Baghdad Radio announce the government of Kuwait had been overthrown and the new government, ...had invited Iraqi soldiers in to keep the peace.
2: This is Radio Baghdad, the broadcasting service of the Iraqi government. Welcome, dear listeners, to our special
1: programme... Peter Burns hurried over to his friend's house. I went to Henry's, started banging on his door. I was shouting, the Iraqis have invaded. We've got to get some money and some food. The Iraqis have invaded. I was
2: hammering on his door and went straight to the
1: supermarket to buy tinned food. We filled empty bottles with water and I sent my wife to go get some money. She took out the maximum, 500 dinar. Among the terrified civilians scrambling for food, water and cash, Iraqi troops rounded up Kuwaiti policemen and any members of the government they could find. Kuwaiti government ministries spent the last few minutes before shutting down, printing new ID cards for government officials. Dr. Ghanayem, an education minister, was given one with his occupation listed as gas company employee. That might have saved his life. Over the coming months of occupation, hundreds of Q80s were tortured and executed. Panic was beginning to grip the capital. Cars darted through red lights and down the wrong side of the road, their drivers desperate to get home. Just after 7 a.m., QAT radio came to life. It had been off air since the invasion began. Oh Kuwait
3: youth, the youth of the future, your homeland needs you. This is your day, the day of sacrifice. Respond to the homeland's call. The people of Kuwait urge you to save them from this barbaric invasion.
1: Shops were looted by the invaders. Iraqi tanks drove recklessly around the city. One of the British Airways crew from flight 149 was to report seeing tanks drive over cars with civilians inside. The q government pleaded with the US ambassador for help. Please send troops, they asked. But there were none to send, not at this notice. For Pam Al Baksami, it was seeing helicopters arriving with reinforcements for the Iraqi first wave that drove home the dire situation she and her family were in.
0: And that's when it hit me that it was really happening. Ugh, it was unnerving. It was like. It was so thick, it looked like a swarm of bees.
1: Soon. There was another shock for Pam Al-Baksami. she had the radio on all morning, desperate for news. Around midday, it crackled to life again, an unfamiliar voice replacing the static.
3: Oh dear sons of Kuwait, for tens of years people of Kuwait have been looking for freedom. The people of Kuwait are part of the Arab nation. Oh dear sons of Kuwait, this is your day, this is your
1: era. The radio station, has been captured by the Iraqis. They are everywhere. Sounds of explosions and gunfire echo through the morning and into the afternoon. The resistance is nearly done. Several Q80 units retreat to the safety of neighboring Saudi Arabia, joining the government and ruling family. Soon, the air force will follow. Better to live to fight another day. Those left behind face seven months of brutal occupation and looting by an invasion force that will seek to strip the country bare. Rubbish will pile up in the streets because the Iraqis even take the bin lorries. In the here and now, Kuwaitis huddle in their homes, fill bathtubs with water, anything they can think of for an unthinkable future. Denise Al Shamari, an American married to a Kuwaiti, Broke off her work for the U.S. Embassy and reached for the phone. Her thoughts are of home. She rings her mother, desperate to hear her voice. Denise, what? But not for long. What's going on? Is everything all... The international lines are cut mid-call. Q8 is now cut off.
0: In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us radio to learn more.
4: Twenty-five to seventy percent off items all over the store at our huge clearance sale going on
3: now. All the cars out there, why a Ford Taurus?
4: Plenty of room. I can kick way back. The guys, clubs, and maybe a few dozen bucks. This Taurus performs the way it hugs the road, handles a curve. It's
0: almost as smooth as oil.
4: <laughs> Hello, I'm Bernard Shaw. Human beings on this planet began the last decade of the twentieth century with hope. The guns of war were silent. Iran and Iraq, exhausted by eight years of fighting, had staggered to a peace each side could live with. Relations between Moscow and Washington had so thawed that people dared to
1: believe
4: that too difficult.
1: An invasion, years in the making, is effectively done in a day. It took the Iraqi invasion force 12 hours to seize control of their neighbour. It set the tone for a war that was to contain relatively few hours of actual combat, but still inflict immense devastation. It was a chilling demonstration of the awful destructiveness of modern warfare.
4: Historic hatreds and the strategy surrounding the Gulf crisis that became the Gulf War.
1: The first Gulf War of 1991 introduced the world to a new form of conflict. A war of missiles guided from hundreds of miles away right to their targets. At least, so went the official line. For the first time, a war was covered around the clock by TV news channels. This was the event that made CNN.
2: Go, do it, put it on the air. got an attack here, I guess you know that. Two is next. next. back to Baghdad. I need Aman. I need Saudi Arabia.
1: Cable News Network had been a fringe player in the media world. After the Gulf War, it was center field.
2: Goodbye for all of us at CNN. Goodbye.
1: It was the first tech war. Stealth planes and smart bombs entering public consciousness, yet still featured one of the largest tank battles in history. Numbers are difficult to pin down, but some historians claim it had more tanks than at Kursk in 1943, an engagement regarded as the biggest ever armoured battle. It was also predicted to be the last tank battle but events in Ukraine have shown how difficult it is to foresee history in general, and military history in particular. Certainly the British and US forces who were to be swiftly deployed in the Gulf had no idea what was coming their way. Much of the combat-ready British and US troops were stationed in Germany, ready to face the Soviets in North Germany, not Soviet-era tanks in the wind, rain, and sandstorms of the desert. Deployed against them would be the fourth largest army in the world. An Iraqi army which, so US and British intelligence informed their governments, was well equipped, in particular with Soviet T-72 tanks and its air force, with state-of-the-art French Mirage fighter bombers. It was an armed forces with significantly greater combat experience. Many of the officers and men of the Republican Guard had fought their way through eight years of war with Iran. A few of the British had been through the Falklands War, a conflict that could hardly have been more different to the one facing them now.
4: Have I made myself clear?
1: Many US commanders did have battlefield experience, but that was in Vietnam, a disaster that continued to haunt the US military. The shadow of Vietnam loomed large in military and political minds. Colin Powell, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, so the most important man in the US military, had done two tours as a junior officer, being decorated for bravery on the second, after he survived a helicopter crash and pulled wounded men from the wreckage.
4: Vietnam was a definitive military event in our lives and careers.
1: It informed Powell's decision-making from day one of the crisis in the Gulf, as he sat down to plan the US military's response.
4: Vietnam is running through my mind very much. Perhaps I was the ghost of Vietnam, and I think as the senior military advisor to the president of the United States, It was my responsibility not only to provide for military options, but to help them shape clear political objectives for the military to help achieve. There have been cases in the past, particularly in the Vietnam period, when senior military advisors didn't force civilians to make those kinds of clear choices. And if it caused me to be the skunk at the picnic, (laughs) take a deep smell.
1: The Vietnam factor had one other key influence
3: on the Iraqi dictator.
1: Saddam Hussein believed Vietnam had had a lasting impact on the US, politically and militarily. He presumed it would limit their response to his actions. They would not want to get bogged down in another messy war a long way from home. Iraq is bordered to the north by Turkey and Syria, in the east by Iran, to the west by Jordan and Saudi Arabia, and in the south by Kuwait and a slither of coast, where the Great Euphrates flows into the Persian Gulf. The
2: bridge of boats that commemorates the city's capture in 1918 by General Maud are the mosques of Baghdad, capital of the ancient Saracen Empire. Evidence of British control is seen in the policemen on point duty.
1: It had been an independent state since 1932. Kuwait gained its independence from Britain in 1961 and ruled by the Ba'ath Party since 1968. Saddam snatched the presidency in 1979 and had held it with increasing brutality with the enthusiastic support of his military. Saddam
3: Hussein always talked about great Iraq Great Iraq meant that Iraq should become the strongest country in terms of the army, the economy and the politics, and he always looked to expand.
1: At first, that mattered not to the West. Saddam was regarded, in those Cold War days, as a key ally, standing against Islamic fundamentalism and, most importantly, Iran the U.S. was happy to adopt the my enemy's enemy is my friend approach to finding an ally in the oil-rich Middle East, as outlined by Brent Scowcroft, George Bush's national security advisor.
2: We had no illusions about the character of this man at all, but we did not see him necessarily as having serious unrequited aggressive aims. We thought it was useful to try and show him we bore him no particular ill will and were prepared to have normal kind of relations with him that would at least be commercially advantageous to both sides. The price of oil goes up and down and we don't know why. We have no control over these forces.
1: With Saddam seen as friendly and blind eyes turned to his regime's brutality, France, the UK and other Western nations were happy to sell arms to a dictator happy to buy them. These weapons were used by Saddam in the eight-year war with Iran that began in 1980, and the initial causes of the Gulf War are found here. As so often, the roots of one war are found amid the wreckage of a previous conflict. The Iran War wrecked Iraq's economy and threatened to undermine Saddam's regime fatally. This is all about Saddam. Saddam Hussein was constantly talking about
3: Saddam wanted to know if we were for or against him. He once said, If my arm were against me, I'd not hesitate to cut it off. He executed anyone he suspected of
1: disloyalty. General Wafik al Samari was head of Iraqi intelligence. He was
3: hot tempered, always tense. You know, his psychological composition was built on suspicion. He was restless. Listen, it's very important you know something about Saddam's character. We know him because he lived with us. He was a very evil person as early as his childhood. He always resorted to terrorist method and tactics. Yes? Anyway, he's a very persistent person. He has the capability to work continuously, but quite often you see him very dense and tight, particularly when the circumstances are
1: pressing. The circumstances in the aftermath of the inconclusive Iran-Iraq war were pressing indeed. In 1980, Iraq had more than $30 billion in forex reserves. Eight years later, it owed $100 billion and now had an infrastructure needing billions more to repair the damage of the best part of a decade at war. $17 billion were owed to Kuwait alone.
3: $350
1: As the price of oil tumbled, a fall assisted by the policies of Kuwait among others, Saddam's position came under threat. Iraqi politics had long been brutal the Iraqi regent was torn to pieces by a mob in 1958, Saddam's response was yet more repression. This is a man who used chemical weapons on his own people, the Kurds, as well as against Iranian forces. In the two years after the end of the Iran war, Saddam survived four assassination attempts. So come 1990, he was in a desperate position, home and abroad. The economy was shot, allies disappeared or disappearing, disaffection at home. All Saddam had left was his army, and they needed paying. Iraq's army had a strength of around a million men before conscription, including a dozen Republican Guard divisions, battle-hardened and highly regarded. It had around 6,000 tanks, mostly Soviet T-55s and T-72s. Its infantry was equipped with the Kalashnikov AK-47, which performed better in desert conditions than the British SA-80, which kept jabbing. Overall, It was the fourth largest army in the world, backed by an air defense network regarded as one of the world's most comprehensive, with some 10,000 anti-aircraft guns and 16,000 surface-to-air missiles. The Air Force was the world's sixth largest. Add the known unknown of Iraq's chemical and biological weapons arsenal and some 800 Scud missiles, capable of hitting Israel and Saudi Arabia, and Iraq appeared a formidable foe. Certainly Western intelligence agencies thought so, although not all were convinced. Britain's obscure defense operational analysis establishment conducted a study on Iraqi military effectiveness going back centuries, comparing performances of Arab armies all the way back to Saladin, and concluded they were not that effective. This study was not well regarded in the Ministry of Defense. The size of Iraq's army and its Soviet tanks, let alone the threat of chemical weapons, convinced many it was a force to be reckoned with. The DOAE, though, were the ones to be proved correct. Another lesson from history that went unlearned. There were other unheeded lessons ahead of Iraq's invasion. Even the buildup of forces on the Iraq-Kuwait border was shrugged aside as merely Saddam grandstanding as he quarreled with Kuwait over debt and oil. He claimed the Kuwaitis had sunk oil wells under the border to steal from Iraq's oil fields. In
0: July 1990,
1: Saddam claimed Kuwait had taken more than $2 billion worth He demanded an aid package and the cancellation of wartime debt. At the same time, he moved Republican guard units to the border. By 19th of July, some 40,000 troops were in position. The Kuwaitis decided it was simply posturing, and even downgraded the alert to their border forces. In public, Kuwait pushed back, denying all Iraq's allegations and asserting they would never give in to Iraqi threats.
2: President of Egypt, Hosni Mubarak, was sent to Baghdad by the Arab League
1: for talks with Saddam. Hosni Mubarak, Egypt's president, was sent to Baghdad by the Arab League for talks with Saddam. The Iraqi leader looked his Egyptian counterpart in the eye and assured him he'd no intention of invading. A date, 31st of July, was set for a summit in Jeddah, where the issue would be settled. Mubarak returned home convinced there would be no war, and he was not the only one. On 25th of July, Saddam reassured the U.S. ambassador, April Glaspie, that he was not going to invade. Indeed, so reassured was Glaspie, five days later she flew home to the U.S. for a holiday. By now, intelligence satellites showed there were more than 100,000 Iraqi troops in the border region. The following day, 31st of July, Iraqi and Kuwaiti delegations met in Jeddah. Give us $10 billion for the loss of our oil and we'll pull our troops back, went the Iraqi opening. Kuwait offered $9 billion. The talks ended with the only agreement being to resume further talks on the 4th of August. But Saddam had had enough. He ordered the invasion. In the early hours of the 2nd of August, 2,000 tanks led 100,000 soldiers into Kuwait. Within 12 hours, it was all over. The royal family and the government led the flight to Saudi Arabia. Tariq Aziz, Iraq's foreign minister.
3: The Kuwaitis acted in an arrogant, irresponsible and provocative manner and that led to the deterioration of the situation. You have to punish those who are threatening you. This is normal in international conflict. When you are sure that somebody is near to you and he is being used by others against you, you
1: have to do something against them. It stunned the Arab world. In fact, it embarrassed the Arab world. Egypt's Mubarak in particular for having taken Saddam's assurances at face value. The wider world too had been caught looking the other way. For all the clues, nobody saw it coming. Britain's Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, pushed President Bush for a forceful reaction. Britain had guaranteed Kuwait's sovereignty against Iraqi aggression since its independence in 1961. And in Thatcher's eyes, that promise stood. Thatcher was toiling at home. Her premiership did not have long to go.
2: Order, order. Well, the prime minister must have a chance to answer.
1: (laughs) Did she see the chance of another Falklands-esque revival of her own fortunes? Thatcher was in the US at the time, meeting with President Bush at Camp David, and her determination to fight fire with fire helped make up Bush's mind. It was like two soulmates finding each other. They found
2: from the very first words they were on the same wavelength that this was a tremendously serious event, that it could not be tolerated, and something had to be done. And then they just talked at each other with great rapidity about what had to
1: be done. On Sunday the 14th of August, Bush returned from Camp David, buoyed by his meeting with Thatcher.
2: This will not stand will not stand this aggression against uh, Kuwait. I've got to go.
1: Wow, thought a watching General Powell. The president's response had taken his own team by surprise, but it sent a clear message not only to Powell, his chief military man, but to the rest of the world. Now they knew what was coming Saddam's way. Over the next few weeks, Bush was to often compare Saddam to Hitler, and there was a particular reason for this, according to Brent Scowcroft, his national security advisor. The president was reading a
2: massive book about the Second World War and had just gotten to the bit about Poland. I think, in his own mind, he demonized Saddam Hussein, and it's not hard to do. This was not an attractive person. And when reports came in about the way Kuwait was being treated or just the way Saddam treated his own people in different circumstances, it took on a good versus
1: evil kind of quality to it. On the 6th of August, the United Nations passed Resolution 661 and imposed sanctions. What next? Diplomacy or force? The Soviet Union and Japan had strong economic links with Iraq the Soviet Union was a dying power. The US was the sole global superpower, and Bush pressed for force. The UK, France, Egypt, Pakistan joined the US, and others soon followed. The moral argument was made repeatedly, but oil mattered. With Kuwait in his position, Saddam controlled 20% of the globe's oil, and was threatening Saudi Arabia's 20% share too. The thought of Saddam controlling 40% of the world's oil was terrifying for the US. At the heart of this was
2: naked aggression against an unoffending country. That was the firm and legal position. But what gave enormous urgency to it was the issue of oil. Yes, that transformed
1: At Central Command's red-roofed, palm tree fringed headquarters, a folder landed on the desk of CENTCOM's commander. General Norman Schwarzkopf was surprised, but pleased to see it. In a command focused on the Cold War, Plan 1002-90 was something else. It had been put together some years earlier, just in case the US needed to defend the Saudi oil fields from an aggressor. And here they were but there was a significant barrier to scale before the plan could be put into operation. Saudi Arabia, deeply conservative, Islamic, was reluctant to let foreign troops onto their soil. The Americans dispatched a high-ranking team to talk to the Saudis. Dick Cheney, Bush's secretary of defense, Schwarzkopf and Robert Gates, deputy advisor on national security, took with them the latest satellite images of Iraqi troops massed on the Saudi border. Did the Iraqis intend to evade Saudi Arabia? It seemed unlikely. Nevertheless, the images were to prove key. The meeting was stretching towards a third hour, when King Fahd turned to his ministers and spoke in Arabic. There was a silence. Prince Bandar, acting as the interpreter, nodded at Cheney. His Majesty says yes. Cheney hurried to call Powell back in the Pentagon. We have permission, start the force moving. Operation Desert Shield meant 250,000 US troops were to be dispatched as quickly as possible to Saudi Arabia to defend the kingdom and its precious oil fields. Operation Desert Shield meant 250,000 US troops were to be dispatched as quickly as possible to Saudi Arabia, to defend the kingdom and its precious oil fields. In 1990, the US military was at the peak of its powers. Yet with the easing of the Cold War, there were already mutterings in Washington about cutting it down to size. For the Pentagon, here was a chance to justify its enormous resources. Two specially designed vast troop ships, known as MPSS's, one in Guam, the other in Diego Garcia, were made ready. An MPSS could support a marine brigade of 16,000 men, plus vehicles and supplies, for 30 days. Within six days of the invasion of Kuwait, troops were flown to Guam and Diego Garcia and set sail on the troop ships. Seven days at sea later, The first equipment was being docked in Saudi Arabia. And 10 days later, an entire marine brigade with 123 tanks and 124 aircraft was in station. Back in Washington and Tampa, planning for the next stage was underway. But there were tensions between White House and Pentagon. Schwarzkopf was compared by some in the White House to the American Civil War general George McClellan. It was not flattering. McClellan, one of Lincoln's commanders, had the reputation of having spent all his time preparing and none fighting. Cheney had taken against Schwarzkopf. In Saudi, he'd seen a colonel on Schwarzkopf's staff ironing a shirt for the general on the floor of a hotel room. Cheney didn't like the impression that gave. Back in Washington, he started to meddle. The first plan put forward by the Pentagon planners was rejected. Nevertheless, day by day, troops, tanks, and fighter planes began to flood into Saudi Arabia. In all, 32 countries were to contribute. Supplies were key to the campaign. The logistical planning required was immense. Everything had to be shipped into the country. Millions of tons of equipment was transported to Saudi Arabia, while diplomatic efforts continued to bring about a solution. More than half a million US troops, plus half again from the rest of the coalition, as well as thousands of tanks, aircraft, and six carrier battle groups congregated in the Gulf. The US forces were a decade ahead of the Iraqis when it came to battlefield technology. But Powell and Schwarzkopf were concerned over the size of the Iraqi army and its battle experience. And that the Iraqis were led by a dictator who did not care how many of his men died in battle. The shadow of Vietnam loomed large. Powell insisted the coalition must have overwhelming firepower.
4: I like to use the term decisive force. Uh, It's the equivalent to being the biggest bully on the block. I've got the knife, I've got the gun, I've got my bat. Are you sure you really want to challenge me?
1: The UN set a deadline 15th of January, 1991 for Saddam to get out of Kuwait or else. It was a race against time, not only for the diplomats, but also for the military planners. In Iraq, civilians prepared for the worst. On television and in the newspapers, later in school as well, there was talk
0: of uniting the historical territory of Iraq. From now on, we had military
1: training in school instead of sports lessons. Older pupils were given Kalashnikovs which they had to bring to school every day along with their book. Before long, my uncles were called to arms. Even my cousin, who was not yet 18, now suddenly had to wear a uniform and was sent to Kuwait with the troops of the Iraqi Popular Army. Foodstuffs disappeared from the shelves and the markets remained empty. My father's
0: salary was suddenly only enough to pay for four kilos of flour, a kilo of sugar and a
1: kilo of rice. We had to give up one meal a day to set aside small reserves of food. Everybody knew the war would come to us as well. The deadline passed and Saddam's forces remained resolutely on foreign soil. Kuwait remained under occupation. It was time for Operation Desert Storm.
2: No one commits America's armed forces to a dangerous mission, lightly, But after perhaps unparalleled international consultation and exhausting every alternative, it became necessary to take this action. And let me tell you why. Less than a week ago, in the early morning hours of August 2nd,
1: Next, on wars that shape the world. We got to about 15, 20 meters, still firing and moving. There's all this adrenaline, you're shouting at the people, telling them we're gonna go forward. There's people who are dead, people who are wounded. People cry, people scream, people beg, because they think you're gonna kill them. But you're gonna go up and execute them. People beg. That Shaped the World was a Goalhanger podcast's production. It was produced by Holy Smokes. This series was written by Robin Scott Elliott. It was narrated by Paul Waggett. The producer was Neil Fern. The executive producer was Tony Pasta.